to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, the Democrat and Republican national conventions are behind us, and thank goodness for that. And the difference between them couldn't have been greater. We'll talk about that. Then there are the events on the ground that I also want to talk to you about, the riots in the streets. They are expanding, and they're growing more violent and more deadly, and we're going to talk about why. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, connected with that, there seems to be a mass exodus from the cities where all of these things are happening. So what will happen to the cities after those who could afford to move out are gone? Then there is COVID-19 and a growing confusion about what it is, what it does, and what we should do about it. It's crazy, really. And it's going to take all of our common sense to deal with it. Then there is some good news, not very common these days, but we do have some. A new sliver of hope from the Middle East, where there is a peace process that is taking hold. In spite of new attacks and threats from Hamas and Hezbollah against Israel. The new relationship between Israel and the United Arab Emirates is, at long last, a major step forward towards changing the balance of relationships in the region and throughout the world. We'll talk about that too. So let's get started. The conventions. Honestly, I found the Democrat convention boring. I watched it, but the speakers were mostly the elites, the stars, the rich and famous, the favored ones. And the man in the center of all this, Joe Biden, for all their talk about diversity and Black Lives Matter, Joe Biden is an old white guy, and it looks like he has diminished capacity. Why are they running this guy? It's interesting, you know. The Democrats started off this campaign season with 26 candidates. And it was a very diverse group, a kind of group they were always talking about. They were mostly millionaires, but they were millionaires or billionaires of different colors. Black, white, Hispanic, even two who were blended races. A number of young candidates with new ideas, young, old, But then, after all that diversity, Joe Biden, the old white guy, was the one they ended up with. How is that even possible? Anyway, the convention was, as I said, boring. They spent most of their time bashing the president and the country, you know, talking about how terrible our economy is, about how badly the president mismanaged the COVID-19 crisis, and how another four years of Donald Trump and the White House will destroy the future of America. It was all bad and mostly untrue. The thing is this. Do you know what was missing? Common sense. A clear and honest view of recent history and anything approaching a sense of fairness and honesty. There was no real vision of the future under Democratic leadership. It was just Trump bad, Democrats good. Now, they do have a platform, 
a draft form of that was approved at the beginning of the convention. But nobody really talked about it. Maybe that was because the party leaders couldn't agree on some of the basic principles. For example, their platform did not include support for the Green New Deal. And it didn't include support for the Medicare for All program that so many Democrats have been promoting and talking about almost nonstop. The more centrist Democrats were okay with leaving those two programs out. But the radicals, the ones on the left, the far left, they were furious. And here's another thing. During the primaries, Bernie Sanders won enough votes to qualify for 1,151 delegates to the convention. He didn't come close to Biden. He won 3,558 delegates, and that gave him the nomination. But Bernie's delegates enabled him to be considered a candidate at the convention. And so he got the right to be introduced and maybe, you know, make a little speech and so forth and, and accept his nomination. And of course, it didn't mean a whole lot because we all knew that Biden was going to get the nomination. But anyway, he was introduced and nominated by no other than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was given one whole minute in which to nominate him. The rest of the four-day convention was given over to the support of good old Joe Biden. You know, the Democrats play a pretty nasty game. They do not honor their own, the people who go out and spend their own money or raise money and do the footwork, travel around, go campaigning for the Democrat Party. On their own behalf, of course, but still they represent the party at large. And the Democrats do not honor this. They pick a candidate, they stand behind him or her, and the others be damned. Well, you know, in the last election cycle, the DNC launched their dirty tricks on him in order to squeeze him out of the running and ensure that Hillary Clinton would get the nomination. Now, that's a story for another day because it's long and complicated, but it illustrates to what lengths the Democrats will go to get their way. They didn't consider Bernie one of their own, and Hillary was their choice by far. Bernie got kicked to the curb. Nice. Now this year, they're throwing all their weight behind the Biden-Harris ticket. And, I don't know, we have yet to see how their support of a tired old white man and his younger female running mate with a diverse ancestry can create a winning ticket in the face of all the unrest that is spreading around the country today, which, by the way, not one of the speakers mentioned, and which, aside from that, many Democrats are supporting. In his acceptance speech, Biden talked about winning the election, quote, for all the young people who have known of rising inequity and shrinking opportunity. And he talked about the worst pandemic in over a hundred years, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the most compelling call for racial justice since the 60s, and the undeniable realities and accelerating threats of climate change." Unquote. He was mostly wrong on all counts. During Trump's presidency, the economy reached heights we haven't even seen before. And what he calls the compelling call for racial justice is mostly riots, looting, arson, and murder on our city streets. 
Our city streets are more dangerous today than they have ever been since the founding of this country. Overall, the Democrat convention was disappointing, to say the least, because it was really negative about the future of this country. It was dark. It was scary. Vague references to more taxes, more government control of our lives, and very little to offer in the way of hope. Now, the Republican convention, on the other hand, was all about hope. Many of the speakers were people whose lives had been touched directly by President Trump. Ordinary people like Alice Johnson, for example. Alice Johnson is a black woman who had served 22 years of a life sentence for a nonviolent drug offense. Until her case caught the attention of the president, who commuted her sentence and made her the poster child of his First Step Act. And she got out of prison and she became an activist for good. Look at that contrast between hopeless life in prison and getting out and not only helping herself, but helping other people as well. That was very motivating, very moving. The First Step Act, by the way, expanded judicial discretion so that judges could ignore mandatory minimum sentences in some cases, and they could shorten some mandatory minimum sentences. This was done by President Trump, and the huge proportion of people who were affected by this, who were released from jail and given the opportunity to remake their lives in a better mold, the vast majority of them were black. And yet the Democrats continue to call Donald Trump a racist. Another speaker, or pair of speakers, were the parents of Kayla Mueller, who was a prisoner of ISIS and the sex slave of the self-appointed caliph of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, until her death at the hands of ISIS. Her parents spoke of her bravery and thanked the president for authorizing the dramatic assassination of al-Baghdadi. They said that they wished that Trump had been president while Kayla was still alive and could still have been rescued. The testimonials came from men and women, black and white, in other words, Americans. In fact, it was the most diverse Republican convention in history. They all spoke about their new jobs, their families, their dreams for the future, and they thanked the president for giving them hope and opportunity. In the Republican convention, the speeches of notables in the Trump administration, they were mixed in with otherwise ordinary people who had stories of success from failure and hope from despair. It was interesting, and for me at least, it was uplifting, it was moving. But it was what happened after the convention was over that was truly disturbing because as the audience began to leave the White House grounds, there was a crowd of rowdy rioters, hooligans, waiting for them outside on the street who began to surround some of those who had attended the convention. And they harassed them. Senator Ron Paul was not only surrounded and harassed, he was actually threatened with death and needed a police guard to protect him and his wife as they walked back to their hotel. My friends, this is America at its worst. It is disgusting. It is disgraceful and it is un-American. It is a reality that cannot be tolerated anymore. And it's not only in Washington. 
It's in cities all over the country. It's Seattle. It's Chicago. It's Portland, Oregon. It's Los Angeles. It's New York City. It's Baltimore. It's Atlanta, Georgia. And St. Louis, Missouri. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Kenosha, Wisconsin. The list goes on and on, and it gets longer as the days go by. My friends, this is America. This can't happen here. And yet, it is. And more than that, it is happening because the people who are leaders of these cities, the mayors, the governors, they are allowing it to happen. And you know what is ironic about this chaos that is going on in our cities? Most of the cities where this is going on, not all of them, but most of them, are run by Democrats who refuse to take a stand against them, who let them burn and loot and destroy the life's work of the people who elected them. This is crazy. This is something unlike anything we have ever experienced before. We have had riots. We had riots in Baltimore and in Washington and in Los Angeles and in Chicago and in New York, but we have never had anything like this, this sustained and growing madness that is infecting so many of our cities. And it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon because the liberal mayors and the liberal governors seem to be quite willing to let this continue. I don't understand it. You know, it was ironic that the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, was absolutely unwilling to call a halt to any of this, any of it. She let the riots go on, the destruction, the fires, the loss of property, the people lost their livelihoods. And yet when the rioters came to her block in Chicago, where she lives, she immediately banned any demonstrations on her street. You know, we've seen this before. We saw it in Seattle, where the mayor had the same experience. Remember CHOP, or CHAZ, the autonomous zone in Seattle? They claimed to be fighting racial injustice, but they were creating that injustice in that six-block area. They destroyed the property and the livelihoods of other black people who lived there, who worked there. Their black lives didn't matter. And the mayor allowed that to happen. She allowed people to be hurt. She allowed their property to be destroyed. But when it came to the mobs coming to her block, to her house, to demonstrate, she put her foot down and fast. This is the problem. The hypocrisy of this is so overwhelming. It's so appalling. It's so disgusting. And this is America today. And the worst part of it is that people are being hurt. People are dying. People's lives and livelihoods are being destroyed. And nobody on the left seems to care very much. But the newest idiocy is that the Democrats are now blaming all this on Trump. You can't make this stuff up, guys. You just can't. It's hypocritical, it's nasty, it's hurtful, and it's not America. This is what they call projection, where they accuse their opponents, their adversaries, of the very things that they themselves do. 
It's something I've talked about before a number of times because it's so prevalent today in today's politics. But we have an election coming up, my friends, and I think we're going to see more of this, not less of it, as the elections get closer. This is not the America that we know and love. This shouldn't be happening here. So the question now is, what do we do about it and what happens next? You know, there's one more thing, and that is because of the COVID-19 virus and because of the riots on the street and the danger on the street, people are moving out of the cities in droves. They're leaving. There aren't enough movers to accommodate all the people who are leaving. So we're going to talk about that after the break. Don't go away. I'll be right back. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back. You know, something very interesting is happening in our cities today. In, in the face of so much stress and fear, the virus that keeps us at home, the raging riots and chaos in the streets of our cities, the spike in personal crime in broad daylight, all of this adds up to an environment where fear is a more common emotion than hope. Now, you know, Americans are not known for their apathy or for their unwillingness to be inactive when the situations of their lives becomes unbearable. So here's what's happening. There seems to be a mass exodus from the cities where the chaos is at the very worst. Take New York City, for example. One of the more common sights as you drive around the residential streets are stacks and stacks of moving boxes on the sidewalk waiting to be picked up. And another sight is moving trucks lined up one behind the other. 
Since the pandemic became a real issue in March, New Yorkers have been moving out of the city in a flow that hasn't stopped since then. Some are just moving to the suburbs, to Westchester County, to New Jersey or Connecticut. Some are moving further away to Florida and Texas. But the reality is that people are leaving New York City in droves. And the real question that arises now is what is going to happen to New York City and other cities like it. Leaving New York City has always been a small issue. People retire, they want to go down to the Sun Belt. In 2018, the New York, the metropolitan area, which includes the five boroughs and not just Manhattan, that area, that region, was losing about 100 people a day to the kind of moves that people make when they are retiring, when they're downsizing, or when they want to move to the Sun Belt, for example, from the cold north. By June, that number had tripled, according to Forbes magazine. And now there is a rush to leave the city. Why? Well, the city hasn't been very kind to New Yorkers. Uh, We remember how Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio had enforced a rule that COVID-19 patients who had been in nursing homes had to return there rather than staying or, or going to a hospital or being admitted to the two new emergency hospitals that were set up by the president uh, in New York, the hospital ship and the and the uh, Jacob Javits and at the Jacobs Javits Center that created 3,500 beds for COVID-19 patients that never got filled. Anyway, what's happening in New York is stunning. And what the powers that be in New York are doing is also stunning. Because as the people leave, as the people move out, as the moving trucks haul away these thousands of moving cartons to Other places, further south, or at least outside the city, the governor and the mayor are talking about, you guessed it, raising taxes on the people who stayed. Now, in California, the situation is even worse because as people leave, they're now being threatened with taxes that will continue for the next 10 years. That's unheard of, that you move out of a place and they continue to tax you for 10 years? That's unbelievable. Well, anyway, it seems as though the Democrat governors and mayors of states like New York and California and others are finding that they are in a major money crunch. They have bills to pay. They have the state and the city to run. That, that's expensive. But the people who pay the taxes are moving away. So what is going to happen to New York? What is going to happen to parts of California? When people move away, apartments are empty and can't be sold because nobody wants to move into New York City. It's tragic, really. New York City was the jewel of the United States. It was the 
port of entry for many, many thousands, millions of immigrants who came from other parts of the world and saw the Statue of Liberty saying, give me your tired, your poor, and they came. But now, New York has become a place that people want to go from, not to. And so, New York is going to become not a ghost town, not completely, but take a walk or a ride, probably is safer, down Fifth Avenue and look at all the wonderful stores that are there that are now boarded up one after another after another because of the riots, because of the destruction, and because people don't go out shopping anymore when they are forced to stay at home under a stay-at-home order by the mayor or the governor. The exodus that we're seeing now started last March when we knew that there was a pandemic and when stay-at-home orders became the rule of the day. But it didn't start in earnest until the stay-at-home orders were lifted to a certain extent and phase one of the reopening began. And that is also when people started leaving in great numbers. Before March, people left New York at the rate of about 100 a day, uh, moving probably mostly moving mostly to retirement places, to the Sun Belt, to family in Westchester, and so forth. But after Ju- but, but by June 2020, that number nearly tripled. Three things have created this mass exodus. The COVID virus, the riots and chaos that came after the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, and the rise, the huge spike in crime and shootings in New York City. And in addition to that, Mayor Bill de Blasio spearheaded new laws like the elimination of cash bail for a variety of crimes, including violent ones, that increased crime on the streets and vagrancy, homelessness on the streets, in very real terms. New York City became a place where many New Yorkers just didn't want to live anymore. Now, Mayor de Blasio's term is up next year, in 2021. And who is going to replace him? Term limits don't allow him to run for a third term. So who is going to replace him? What will... the remaining New Yorkers do when it comes to a vote? Are they going to elect another progressive who was just going to continue these insane policies? Or will they come to their senses and elect somebody who is actually going to keep their welfare and their safety in mind? That remains to be seen. So far, there doesn't seem to be anybody on the horizon, but that could change. In the meantime, New York is quickly becoming a place to leave, not to come to. And New York City isn't alone. San Francisco, for example, which is one of the most expensive cities in the country, 
has seen the number of houses for sale nearly double from the numbers it was a year ago. And like New York City, moving companies have seen a surge in activity in the past six months. In New York City, it's estimated that at least half a million people have moved out of the city in the last year. That's a considerable chunk of the tax base that New York City depends on, and New York State too. The loss of taxes for the state and the city is going to impact heavily on the state's budget, on education. And here's another thing. How are they going to take care of the homeless whose numbers have exploded on city streets and who can't escape the city? How are they going to take care of the homeless that they have installed in hotels throughout the city? And how are they going to maintain the social services for the homeless that they are now supporting? The Democrat answer to all this is to raise taxes, as I mentioned before. So so what better way to drive more people away from New York City than to raise their taxes after they have decreased the services that they're providing for their residents. It makes no sense at all, but it seems to be the progressive way of looking at city management. It's difficult to understand how these cities like New York and San Francisco are going to move forward as the people who support the city and all of its services and infrastructure move away and take their money with them. We'll see, but it certainly doesn't look promising. A lot will depend on the upcoming elections and the elections that follow that will either replace progressive mayors Mm -hmm. and governors who are creating this terrible problem in our cities by ignoring the chaos that's being caused by the riots, or when the elections come, will the voters look for another solution from people who better understand the dynamics of a city and what is required to keep the residents of the city, and by the way, the voters who elected him or her, We'll see. Not only is the upcoming election for the president going to be extremely interesting, but so will the election uh, relating to some of these city employees, these mayors, these mayors and state attorneys and city councils. We'll see how they fare in the next election. Stay tuned. Now here's a related issue and it's about COVID-19. The question is, what is it? And how does it work? And what is it going to do to America as we know it, and to the world for that matter? And the, the answer is not simple, because the truth is we really don't know what COVID-19 is. We know, of course, that it's a virus, and we know that viruses keep changing. But this one is changing more and in different ways from any other virus we've seen before. Uh, We've talked about the fact that 
This virus was most likely, in fact, almost assuredly created in a laboratory. So it has things, it has characteristics that we've never seen in viruses before. It has already mutated many times. And as it changes, it's doing something that is creating major problems for doctors and nurses and all the people who attend to COVID-19 patients. What it is doing is changing the symptoms, changing the targets, changing the way the virus behaves. For example, it used to be at the beginning of this virus that the most vulnerable people were the elderly. And we were all warned that if we were over a certain age, we were more likely to contract the virus than if we were younger and that it really didn't affect young people very much. And then it started to affect young people. And then it started to show different symptoms. In the beginning, it was mostly high fever and the cough, the heavy chest cough that made it difficult to breathe. Those were the symptoms that we first learned about and worried about. But then it changed because we learned that if you contract this virus, you are more likely to lose your sense of taste, your sense of smell. And we learned that you could get this virus and not have any symptoms at all. And then we saw that young people started to be more affected, even very young children. And that was new. And on and on. And then more people were vulnerable, not only the elderly, not only the younger ones, but people who had comorbidities like obesity and diabetes. As time went on, from the first days of the virus as we knew it as a pandemic, which was in March, the virus became increasingly complicated and it became more difficult for healthcare workers to understand how the changes in this virus affected treatment. This is a story that is far from over. What we do know is that the coronavirus, the COVID-19, the China virus, the Wuhan virus is going to be with us for some time. But I would like to put a little bit of perspective on this before we move on to another story. Here's what I want to say. According to the most recent statistic, the world death toll from this virus is somewhere in the neighborhood of 852,000 people. Now that's, that's a lot of people and every single death is a loss. But if we think for a moment, we can remember how lucky we really are. Our science is at such a level that we understand far more about the virus, even though we still have a lot to learn. But if we look back a hundred years at the Spanish flu, when they didn't even have microscopes that were powerful enough to see the virus, in that pandemic, it was 50 to 100 million deaths worldwide. And that, my friends, is something to think about. How lucky we really are to be living in the 21st century, where this virus can be confronted from science and where the hope of finding a cure and a vaccine against the virus is real and hopefully imminent. I think the real key here for us living in the 21st century 
is to employ a lot of common sense. If wearing a mask is going to keep you safer, then wear a mask. If social distancing is going to keep you safer, then employ social distancing when you go out, when you're with people. It all makes sense. It's not rocket science, as they say, but it could make a big difference in your life or the life of someone else. Now, after the break, I want to tell you about some good news about the normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. This is a big deal, and it may have a big impact on our lives going forward. So stay tuned. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. some relatively good news, very good news, and it's special because we don't usually hear good news from the Middle East, not very often, and yet here it is. It's been 72 years since the founding of the State of Israel in the spring of 1948, and the relationship between Israel and her Arab neighbors has always been difficult at best and deadly at worst. In Israel's relatively short life, the country has been through a dozen major wars, countless border skirmishes, and thousands of terrorist attacks on Israeli civilians. Almost all of Israel's efforts to achieve peace with her neighbors has really borne very little fruit. Since 1948, Israel has been reaching out to her Arab neighbors and to the Palestinian people who live within the Israeli borders to create some sort of peace. And twice it happened, in 1979 with Egypt and in 1994 with Jordan. But those treaties, they they were tenuous because over the years, tension between the countries for one reason or another resulted in skirmishes and misunderstandings and they nearly broke the treaties and threatened to end them. Now, maybe you didn't know this, but Israel has actually been engaged in commerce with Arab countries for decades, although it was always hidden in the dark behind the curtain because it was illegal for the Arab countries to do business with Israel. And here's how it worked. I'll give you an example. As you may remember, I lived in Israel for many years. My first job there was at a printing house, and one of my early assignments was to prepare a booklet. It was a small booklet for Saudi Arabian children. Now, Saudi Arabia, as you know, is an Arab country and has never had 
a relationship with Israel. My job was to design the booklet and prepare it for printing. After it was fully ready, the design was sent to New York, where it was printed, and from there, it was sent to Saudi Arabia. Here's the point. Of course, there are excellent printing companies in Israel, as in many countries, but Saudi Arabia could not admit to doing business with Israel. So instead, the printer in New York did the printing and the shipping, so it appeared to be a fully American product. See, no problem. And that is how Israel was able to do business with Arab countries in these three-way relationships on the sly, without diplomatic and commercial relationships. But you know, that's no way to do business. And the new relationship between Israel and the United Arab Emirates has, at long last, taken a giant step forward towards bringing commerce into the open and changing the balance of relationships in the Middle East. Unlike Jordan and Egypt, The UAE does not border on Israel, and so border issues are not on the table. They're not. What is relevant, however, is that both Israel and the United Arab Emirates are economic powerhouses in the region. And so this partnership has a potential for leading the region into a new era of growth and prosperity. This new alliance can also address relevant security issues that can be partially solved as the countries of the region confront the threats from Iran and their serious threats. This past week, President Trump sent his White House advisor, Jared Kushner, to assist in the normalization of ties between the two countries. And before leaving the United Arab Emirates, Kushner predicted that the other Middle East voices that he called the vocal minority would become increasingly marginalized if they don't also come on board with a normalization process. Well, this may or may not happen, but in the meantime, this is a really big accomplishment. And lest I forget to mention it, this was on the initiative of President Donald Trump. And here's what has happened so far. According to the agreement between the two countries, Trade between them, which has always been forbidden, is now permitted. In fact, two days before the first Israeli delegation was scheduled to visit the UAE in an historic visit on August 15th, the president of the UAE issued a decree abolishing the boycott of Israel. So now they're having talks to discuss cooperation in aviation, trade, tourism, finance, health, energy, and defense, that's a full plate. According to the UAE official news agency, the end of the boycott allows Israelis and Israeli firms to do business in the United Arab Emirates and allow the United Arab Emirates to purchase and trade in Israeli goods. Israel is ecstatic, and they can hardly wait until the first tourists from the United Arab Emirates arrives in Israel. This new agreement lays out a kind of a roadmap to facilitate the launching of new joint cooperations, new projects, bilateral relations that will stimulate the economy and promote technological innovations. It's awesome. Now, 
Some Israeli firms have already signed deals with their Emirati counterparts. And Israel is now looking forward to joint ventures in aviation and finance and other industries. The first commercial flight between Israel and the United Arab Emirates took place last week when an El Al plane flew from Israel to Abu Dhabi, carrying a delegation of Israeli and American officials to begin talks on the details of normalization. One Israeli newspaper dubbed this flight the Flight of Peace, and the flight number of the two flights coming and going were the international area codes of the two countries. So the flight to Abu Dhabi was LY971 for the United Arab Emirates International Dialing Code, and the flight back was LY972 for the International Area Code of Israel. According to that newspaper, quote, no matter how we look at it, this is a fascinating historic event. And so it is. But why is it so important and how will it affect the United States? Well, I'll tell you. For the last 72 years, the Arab countries of the Middle East have refused to recognize Israel as a sovereign state and have done everything possible to demonize the Jewish state at the UN and among other nations of the world. That hatred for Israel led to a dozen wars and continual military skirmishes and terrorist attacks between wars. The only two countries in the region that broke through that barrier were Jordan and Egypt. But those peace treaties were limited and they weakened over time, and occasional terrorist attacks continued from those countries with whom Israel had a peace treaty. This is different. It's not just a treaty that, that limits the relationship to specific issues. This is a full normalization between two countries, and it covers far more than either of the earlier treaties did. It also spells out a major change in the region because the UAE is a leader in the Arab world. It's a federation of seven states, and it was once a quiet backwater among the Arab states, but it became one of the Middle East's most important economic leaders. It's one of the most economically diverse countries in the entire region. And its strategic plan for the next few years focuses on even further diversification. It aims to expand as a global trade and tourism hub, to develop new industry, and to create more jobs. And on its official website, are you ready for this? The UAE aims to establish the first inhabitable human settlement on Mars by 2117. Now that's ambition. So what happens in the UAE has an impact on the rest of the Middle East and the rest of the world. And its move to establish relations with Israel will carry weight in other Arab countries. But to understand the growing love affair between Israel and the UAE, we need to go back a few years, 14 in fact, 
in order to understand how much has changed in just those few years. In 2006, a big controversy blew up in the U.S. when a British firm was sold to Dubai Ports World, that was known as DPW. It was a UAE-owned firm that, as part of its new responsibility, would take over the management of six major U.S. ports. Boy, did that cause an uproar. Now, the deal was approved by the U.S. Treasury, and it was backed by then-President George W. Bush. But Congress was still seething from 9-11, and they called it a national security threat. They voted to delay the deal, and a lawsuit against it delayed it further. And finally, the UAE-owned company sold its assets to an American company, and that was the end of it. Today, nearly 20 years after 9-11, the dynamics of Middle East politics are very different. Israel and the UAE share a common enemy, Iran. So this normalization of relations and the UAE's warm reception of the Israeli delegation to Dubai signaled a new era of mutually beneficial relationships between the Arab states and Israel. And this was a good first step. It's also a step around the Israeli-Palestinian standoff, which has been going on for decades. All efforts on Israel's part to achieve a lasting peace between Israel and the Palestinians have failed. All efforts to achieve a lasting peace between Israel and the Palestinians on the part of the Americans have failed. In every case, the Palestinian leaders, both Yasser Arafat and the current president of the PA, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, both of them walked away from the negotiations before reaching a peace agreement. In an anomaly of history, President Bill Clinton oversaw the creation of what we all thought was a peace treaty, with a handshake on the White House lawn between Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat. As a result, both men won a Nobel Peace Prize for this, although there was never any peace following either the handshake or the prize. Many other efforts failed as well. Even President Trump tried to promote what he called the deal of the century, but it fell far short and Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority, refused to even read it before turning it down. Out of hand. Absolutely not. No questions. But the agreement between Israel and the UAE overrides any effort on the part of Mahmoud Abbas to destroy a peace plan. Because with or without him, Israel now has a real partner for peace with the United Arab Emirates. For a real peace, and a comprehensive one at that. That is significant. And it's a first comprehensive normalization of relations between Israel and any Arab country. It is historic, and because of the influence of Dubai on the rest of the Arab world, it may lead to other Arab countries finally coming to the table with the Jewish state. When the Israelis went to Dubai, 
to conclude the arrangements for this historic agreement. They were welcomed warmly with open arms. And here's what it does for the region. Access to the Israeli technology industry will add significantly to Dubai's economic power. Joint ventures and partnerships will add enormous value to both countries. And in addition, the three-way alliance between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and the United States will present a strong opposition to the threat of Iranian power. In fact, after this agreement was signed, Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei said in a speech that the United Arab Emirates had betrayed the Islamic world and the Palestinians by reaching this deal. The Emiratis, he said, will be disgraced forever. But here's the bottom line. In this agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and the United States will launch a strategic agenda for the Middle East. And that will expand diplomatic, trade, and security cooperation among as many of the Arab nations as are willing to drop the old hate and the old rejection of Israel and come together to form a new vision for the future of the Middle East. It is not overly dramatic to say that this may be a new beginning of cooperation and prosperity in the Middle East. As I said before, it's a very good beginning. Now I have one more quick story to tell you, and it comes under the category of you just can't make this stuff up. Do you remember when Governor Cuomo signed an executive order requiring New York's nursing homes to accept active COVID-19 patients back into their facilities despite the vulnerability of the elderly residents there? And, and do you remember Cuomo denying that he had done so even though he signed the executive order? Well, the Empire Center for Public Policy has requested, under the Freedom of Information Law, access to the records of the residents who died, both in the nursing homes and in the hospitals to which they were sent. And they are now accusing the administration of stonewalling the request. Well, you'll never guess what the administration's response was. They say they can't find them, although they say they're looking very hard. And here's the kicker. The health commissioner has another explanation altogether. He says the data is actually available, but he's not ready to make it public. He says it has to be tabulated and gone through and inspected and reviewed. And guess when he will be ready to release it? On November 5th, two days after the election. Really? You just can't make this stuff up. Well, my friends, we're at the end of our hour, and I want to thank you for spending it with me. Have a good week, a healthy week, a safe week. And I'll look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report. Thank you.